Well, it's always an honor uh, to come and share God's word with you here at RCC. RCC holds a special place in my heart. I have quite a bit of family here, but more than that, I have a lot of friends, actually, that span way back, several decades even. And um, as I'm looking out, Steve Danzi, I don't know if you guys know, but I roomed with him for uh, in college for, for a year. And uh, I remember staying up late at late nights talking about um, my pursuit of my wife, Kim, here at the time. She... She was very resistant to my advances, <laughs> and I see Charles Peck in the back there, and uh, after I graduated, I went back to St. Louis, my hometown, and, and he was working for Boeing there at the time, and both of us would, would um, commiserate and actually lament because these women were rejecting us, <laughs> who would become our eventual wives, and so we would find solace in, uh, in grieving together, and so, um, yeah, at that time, we were stalking our wives. I should say courtship, because they eventually said yes, so... Uh, it was, uh, it's good to see a lot of these old faces. <clears throat> um, I also got to, it's good to see some of the youth here. Are, are the youth still here? This room got really empty all of a sudden, okay. So I recognize some of you. I, I spoke at the, the RCC Youth Winter Retreat. I think it was kind of a last-minute thing, but it's really good to uh, see some of you again, too. Let me open us in prayer before we get into the Word here. Father, we thank you so much for this place and this time in your wisdom you have called us as your children um, to find rest in you and the busyness of life and in uh, the rhythms of, of, um, of our crazy world, we uh, recognize that we need you, um, that we need your help, we need your wisdom, we need your word to guide us as a lamp to our feet. And so as we turn into your word now, we ask that your spirit would um, do what only your spirit can do, that you would open our eyes to your truth, that you would grant us the faith to respond to it, and to live out um, by the power of your spirit what you have called us to as your, as your people. It's in your son's precious name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, so I'm going to operate the slides here. I don't usually do that, so forgive me if I'm off a little bit. Um, so six years ago, I went to a, see, I went to a camp. Um, it was a father-daughter camp called Camp Paradise that Willow Creek used to run. I think they still do. And I went with my daughter, and at that time she was nine years old. And uh, she gave me permission <laughs> to share this. She's actually in the room. And at this camp, there was no indoor plumbing. There was no electricity, no Wi-Fi, no cell phone service. And I think this is actually very intentional. Uh, the goal is for dads to have no distractions, and there's nothing else to do but for dads to give their daughters their undivided attention, and it was awesome. I learned so many new things. I, I went several years with my, my girl, and Selah, and I didn't know uh, things, so many things about her that I would learn at this camp, and even in, in our drive. It was a nine-hour drive there and back uh, in Upper Michigan. And out at this campsite, um, they had all these different activities, like these huge climbing walls, these rope courses, and they're designed to stretch you, to conquer your fears, and to create some good memories for you and your child. And the whole week, we kept hearing from the other campers that the most challenging activity in the entire camp was the monkey bars at the ropes course. And this is nearly 40 feet in the air, as you can see, and you have to swing across about 15 feet of bars. And every time someone mentioned the monkey bars or the, on the ropes course that week, Sayla would turn to me and she would say, Dad, 
I just want you to know I'm not going to do the monkey bars, okay? <laughs> and like any good dad, I, I would not accept that as an answer, especially a tiger dad. <laughs> and said I, I would have to press her to overcome her fears, and she kept saying no, and so I promised her a candy bar if she tried it. And the motivational power of a Kit Kat for a nine-year-old is very amazing. And she finally said, okay. And so I want to show you a brief video of it. This is after she made it all the way to the other side. You've got to go back and forth. And she's now making her way, at, uh, way back. So please just ignore my obnoxious screaming in this video. <laughs> Yeah, let's give her an applause. She's in the room. Let's appreciate that awesome effort. And she did great. And she was the only kid that day to complete the monkey bars at that point. And after she finished it, of course, as a good daughter, she started egging me on. And at that point, you know, I was participating in all the activities. And I, we, the dads in the, my, our cabin kind of made a competition out of all these activities. And um, I got to tell you, the day before, I did this climbing wall race against another dad, and he was a former Marine, and I beat him up. And so I was feeling really good. I was feeling really good about myself. But let me tell you, when I got on this monkey bars, it was ugly. It did, not, it did not end well. I only made it halfway, the first leg, halfway to the first leg, and I'm, I'm completely spent. And I'm hanging on these bars, and I'm feeling hopeless, and all these nine-year-old girls are just pointing and laughing at me. And after a minute of hanging there, I, I realized I, I just don't have the strength to go on. And I had to let go. And I really tested the limits of that harness. <laughs> but I was hanging there like a piece of raw meat, and the guy's just pulling me in. And it just looked so pathetic. And I'm so glad that no one took video of that, because I would have been tempted to show you. But I bring this up because I think those monkey bars are a metaphor for life. You know, there are some of you here today... You're halfway through your own set of monkey bars. A life situation or a problem that you were convinced you could finish. And now suddenly, you realize that this is way beyond you. You don't have the strength to go on. And you've, you're losing all hope. And maybe you're there because someone forced you into that place, like I did to my daughter. And maybe you're there because, like you, you foolishly thought that you could get by in your own strength, in your own power. Or maybe you're just waiting and you're not sure what to do and you're stuck. You don't know whether to go back or go on and you're stuck with no way out. Well, today's sermon is about the power of hope. And it's about claiming one of the greatest promises in Scripture which instructs us on how we discover God's strength and how we press on when we have exhausted our own. And it comes from one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament in Isaiah 40. And these verses are very dear to me because they are some of the very first verses I memorized when I became a Christian 
as a teenager. I, this is actually a bit different than what uh, Dave just announced. <laughs> I found out yesterday that your former, I guess one of your pastors is going through Luke, and so at 10.30 last night, I switched the message entirely. So sorry, Dave. I think you, got that, you didn't get that note. But we're looking at Isaiah today. And so Isaiah actually is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And what I love about it is that every time I get into the book of Isaiah, it has a way of putting me in my proper place, and that's down low. And it has a way of putting God in his proper place, and that's up high on his throne. And we just sing about that this morning. And one night before bed at this daddy-daughter camp, Sayla and I, we went out and we laid on this boat dock to stargaze. And I'll never forget it because I've never seen a night like this. No clouds in the sky, no moon to outshine the stars, no city lights to compete. We saw satellites flying across the sky. We saw shooting stars. Uh, We even saw the Milky Way. This is not advancing anymore. I'm not sure what's wrong. There we go. Um, and I remember telling Sayla that night, I love looking at the stars at night because even though it makes me feel incredibly small, it makes God seem incredibly big. And I think the book of Isaiah is kind of like stargazing in that way. It gives you a picture of God that is so majestic, so powerful, so wise and wonderful, and it makes you feel so incredibly small. It's humbling. Isaiah is made up of 66 total chapters, but it's broken into two sections. The first 39 uh, chapters of this book speak to this period of Israel's history before they were exiled to Babylon, and the main theme in the first section of the 39 chapters can be summarized as just a warning of judgment. A warning of judgment. And the leaders and lay people of the southern kingdom of Judah, they're guilty of idolatry, they're guilty of rebellion, and so God, in his mercy, he's warning his people of an impending judgment if they do not turn from their wicked ways. And that judgment would come in the form of an invading enemy nations. Uh, The first being Assyria, followed by Babylon, just as God would predict. But starting in Isaiah 40, the tone and and the style of this book shifts dramatically because now Isaiah is not prophesying to the people of his day. He's given a vision of a future generation who would be enduring the judgments pronounced in the first 39 chapters, a people who would be living in exile as captives in Babylon. This is a time when there's a deep sense of hopelessness among God's people. And all of these godless pagan nations are surrounding Judah, and they're all stronger than um, the nation of Judah. And the people are wondering, what is going on? How could a sovereign God allow this to happen? Where is God? Did his judgment mean that God had rejected his people? And what was to become of them and all the promises that God had made to them? And the holy city of Jerusalem and temple has been destroyed and and the best and the brightest from Judah have been shipped off and they're taken captives as Babylon and all hope is lost. And you may recall that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, lived during this time and their stories are told during this time and they're captives growing up in Babylon. And Isaiah 40 and on are a word for this generation and for all the generations to follow. But it's here, in their brokenness, in this hopeless situation, that God, through the prophet Isaiah, he speaks these amazing words from Isaiah 40 to a people who have lost hope in God and who's lost hope in God's purpose for them. And this whole chapter is amazing, but I'm going to begin in verse 28, and it says this, Do you not know Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. (coughs) He will not grow tired or weary. 
and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. To a people who have lost all hope, who have grown tired and weary of waiting, God speaks these words of hope. He has not forgotten his people. He wants them to know, even though they have forgotten him. And it's here that God asks these two questions. Do you not know? Have you not heard? And these are rhetorical questions, aren't they? Because all of these truths about God, they're not new revelations. Isaiah is not telling them anything new. In fact, much of this was already spoken of in the first 39 chapters. He was simply reminding them of what they had forgotten in their hopelessness. That the Lord is the everlasting God. And the people of Judah, in this time of distress, they had placed their hope in themselves. They refused to trust God and his power, and instead they aligned themselves with these pagan nations that surrounded them. God warns them against this because they could see these rising threats of Assyria and later Babylon that are pressing down upon them. And so they feel like, we've got to do something about this. We've got to find our own way. And so this is why in Isaiah 31, verse 1, <clears throat> God says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, or on horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see, the people of Judah, they fell into the same trap that we often do. They would rather trust what they could see and touch and feel than the God that they could not. And so they would rather turn to another pagan country like Egypt or horsemen to find security, to find hope. And I want to ask, what is the object of your hope today? Who are you hoping in? What have you placed your hope upon? Like the people of Judah, is it only things that you can see and touch? I don't think we're that different from them, actually. When trouble hits, we often place our hope in anything and everything but God, don't we? I want to just share a few things that we often hope in, we place our hope in ourselves instead of God. And for most of us, I think, if we're really honest, our hope is on our own strength, on our own wisdom, our own ability to engineer or manipulate the right outcomes in our life. We say we believe in God, but really, we trust ourselves. Right? Uh, coming from the North Shore, I see this a lot, you know, especially if you have children. Right? We, we, we want so much for them to flourish and succeed. And so, in all our power, we're trying to set them up in the right clubs, in the right sports, in the right activities, in the right schools, so that we can set them up for success in life. And we believe that we have the power to do that. Second, we place our hope in others. We look to our friends, or maybe even our spouse if we're married, or maybe even our children to be the source of our hope and happiness. And we crush them under the weight of these unfair, unreasonable expectations, or we're deeply disappointed when they cannot deliver for us. We place our hope in, in things. We place our hope in savings accounts, things to make us happy, how much money we have in the bank, college funds, retirement plans. And those things are not evil in and of themselves, but they are evil when we place our hope in them for a sense of security apart from God. We place our hope in a, a change of circumstances or a, a change in location. We don't like our current situation. We want to leave 
We want to start over, whether it's go to another church, find another job, move to another city, seek another partner. We're convinced that this person, this place, this thing is the reason for all of my problems. And so all our hope is poured into changing that or changing them. But God, through Isaiah, says to his people then and to his people today, hope in me. Hope in me. Not in yourself. Not in anyone else. Not in anything. Not in a new place or a new opportunity. I want you to place your hope in me. You know, the, the dictionary definition of hope is, is this. is hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Right? But what Isaiah is telling us is not just to hope, but to hope in the Lord. And this is very different from the way we think about and talk about hope. Hope is not just waiting with expectation. Hope in the Lord means placing your hope in God. So allow me to give you a working definition of what I believe hoping in the Lord is, which I think is, is, is different. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act. Not ourselves, not others, not things, not circumstances, but for God to act in his way and in his time. Why? Because I trust in his power and his promise. And I have faith in his wisdom and his will. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in his way and in his time. Why? Because I trust in his power and his promise and have faith in his wisdom and his will. <clears throat> you know, the people of Judah, they clearly were hoping for a better life, a better situation than they found themselves in, largely because of their own doing. Their temple was in ruins. Their city was destroyed. Their people uh, held captive against their will, and they're living under oppression and bondage, and their leaders were doing everything in their own power. But they were not trusting in God. And they chased false idols, and they built alliances with pagan nations, and God warned them to not trust, and they fell further into hardship and hopelessness as a result, and they didn't have the strength to go on. And Isaiah 40, 31 tells us something very simple but profound. It says, those who hope in the Lord will what? will renew their strength. To see the power of God at work in your life, to experience the strength to persevere, you must place your hope fully upon him. Not on yourself. Not on anyone else. Not on anything. So let me unpack what I believe, again, what is this biblical definition of hope. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in his way and in his time. What does that mean? Well, you cannot separate the nature of hope from the element of time, right? The two go hand in hand. Many English translations translate Isaiah 40, 31 as those who wait on the Lord instead of those who hope in the Lord. You see, God is inviting us to trust him because he alone holds time in his hands. He is not controlled by time. He stands outside of time, and he wants his people to stand firm in this and trust him. And he reminds his people of this in Isaiah 44 when he says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? 
And it's like God is just throwing down the gauntlet here. He says, everything that God predicted through Isaiah in the first 39 chapters before their exile has come to pass. Because the people of Judah did not heed his warning. And he warned them not to trust Egypt as an island. He warned them not to continue in their rebellion where Assyria would overtake them. And over and over again in Isaiah, God proves himself with prediction after prediction, with prophecy after prophecy. And that he alone knows the end from the beginning. And he's basically challenging all, saying, who else can do this? Who else can predict the future except for the one who holds it? But here is the point. Because God knows it all, we can trust his plan and his purpose for the universe and for our lives. We are called to hope. But God does not hope. God knows. And we can trust in his knowledge and we can trust in his timing because his perspective is eternal. You know, it's like when, you, when you're at a train stop or intersection, there's a long train that's passing by from the ground and you can see the cars going by one after another and, you know, it's often frustrating, right? You've got somewhere to go. You don't know how long this train is. And you get frustrated. And yet God sits above and high above it all. He sees the entire train and he's telling us what he sees. But we don't want to, want, we don't want to trust him. Because we're like, I don't believe you, God. I know what I see. All I see is these cars, one after the other. And so often we want to take matters into our own hands because we cannot wait any longer. And the Bible is filled with men and women who chose to act in their own will instead of on God's will. And it never ends well, does it? I'm thinking of Abraham and Sarah and how they take their Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and she acts as a surrogate, right? And Ishmael is born. And because they can no longer wait on the promise of God that a son would be born to them who would later become Isaac. I think of Esau who sells his birthright to his brother Jacob because he couldn't wait. He was so hungry he needed a pot of stew. I think of the people of Israel waiting for Moses on Mount Sinai thinking that he had died. And so what do they do? They build a golden calf. I think of Job's wife looking at Job and telling him to just curse God and die. I think of Saul making an offering instead of waiting for Samuel. I think of the prodigal son who could not wait for his inheritance and he demands it from his father. Perhaps there are some of you that are in this place, and I know I've been there. You've been hoping for things to change in your life, but you're not hoping in the Lord. And you're tired. You're tired of waiting on God, and so you want to take matters into your own hands. And it has only made matters worse, not better. But hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in his way and in his time because I trust in his power and I trust in his promise. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak. I've come to realize that after living for almost 50 years now, and I like to be in control. But, um, gosh, it's been 11 years now. Uh, my wife, well, you never guess if you look at her now, but she was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, lymphoma, 11 years ago, and I suddenly realized what an illusion control is. I thought I was in control of everything at that point in my life. But I suddenly realized I have zero control over anything in my life. And coming out of that season, uh, you know, she went through some very intense chemotherapy and was in remission, and, and shortly after that, um, I spiraled into this um, dark season of just anxiety and depression that I'd never experienced before. And I remember just thinking, what if the cancer comes back? What if I end up getting sick with something? Not just my wife. What if I lose my job? What if this? What if that? 
And I literally could not sleep at night. And I lost 30 pounds in a month. I don't know how I did it. I wish I could do it again, but I've <laughs> never been successful. And I was taking these really uh, intense sleeping pills, and it wasn't even making any difference. And I was up all night just running all these scenarios in my head. Fear was just overwhelming me. And when you're not getting sleep, things just go from bad to worse, right? And I couldn't sleep. I was so tired. I was so weary. I felt so hopeless. And I remember there was this, this was season. I didn't even want to live anymore. I just didn't have any hope to go on. And as Isaiah, as Isaiah says, even youth grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. And I was falling. And there was no bottom in sight. And for the first time in my life, I realized I had no control, and it scared me to death. And I remember during that season, um, my wife, it was like, um, I, I just had so trouble getting out of bed. And my wife suggested, you, do you want to just go down to Naperville? We lived in Palatine at the time. Go down to Naperville and visit Ken and Lydia. Um, and Lydia's my sister, if you guys didn't know that. And so, you know, I... I thought, okay, let's do that. I just need to do something. And I remember as we're driving down 53, this crazy storm. I couldn't even see like 20 feet in front of me. Just all you could see is water. And at that point, I remember Kim, my wife, saying, like, should we just turn around and go back home? This is crazy. And I was like, no, we're going to go. So we drove almost an hour to uh, Kevin and Lydia's house. And, and then all of a sudden, the storm just cleared. And it was just a beautiful day. And... Um, they live right by this place called Wayland Lake, and I remember um, just taking a walk um, with our families then, and it was just me and Ken. And, um, you know, I, I remember feeling so hopeless. And as I was walking around that lake um, with my brother-in-law, Ken, I, he, I just remember these words, you know, he was just telling me, like, you know, I know it's really hard, Peter, right now, but I really believe that God is... Is doing something good here. And one day you're going to look back at this and um, you're going to be amazed you know, at, at what God is doing. Something like that. <laughs> and I just remember at the time thinking, okay, thanks for the encouragement, but I don't believe a single word you say. <laughs> but it still stuck with me. I, I had, I guess, just enough faith to remember that. And um, it gave me hope. And eventually, um, I would be able to get back on my feet again in a few short months. And then a couple years later, I would actually step into ministry and um, become a pastor. And if Isaiah tells us anything, it's that God is in control, that he is sovereign over all creation, that nothing gets by him, nothing happens that he does not allow. It says in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, For I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Because God is all-knowing and all-powerful, he is sovereign over all of creation, he alone is in control. And even the youngest and the most fit among us has a point where we all wear down and we all tire out, but God assures us that he does not. He will not grow tired or weary. Not only that, he gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. Isaiah is filled with declarations of God's power, and this is not because God is an egocentric deity who's flexing his muscles. He's reminding his people 
He's far stronger than any enemy that they are facing or will ever face. He is the creator. He's to the ends of the earth, of the ends of the earth. But why does God want to give his people hope? Because hope is a powerful thing, especially when you're running out of strength. And we often underestimate just how powerful hope is. You know, back in the 1950s, there was a scientist named Dr. Kurt Richter. And he ran an experiment on rats. And you might think this was unusually cruel, even for rats. But he took a bunch of wild Norwegian rats, and he placed them in tubs full of water. And within 15 minutes, every single rat would, would die from drowning. And then he tweaked the experiment. He took another group of the of same type of rats, and he tried it again. But just before they were about to drown, like right before 15 minutes, he would rescue them out of the water, and he would let them recover for a bit. And then he would put them back in the water, and he would do this over and over again, just until they were at the cusp of drowning. And in the final test, he took these rats, these same rats, and he placed them in the water again, and then he wouldn't pull them out until they drowned. Can anyone guess how long those rats swam before drowning? They lasted for two to three days. (laughs) Days. The same rats that would give up and drown in 15 minutes' time, given just the slightest hope of salvation, they now found the strength to swim 240 times longer than they did before. And this is the power of hope. God wants us to hope because he wants to bring that kind of power into our lives. Not just any power. He wants to give us his power. But listen, his power can only come by hoping in him. The verse doesn't just say those who hope will renew their strength. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And that is the key. When we misplace our hope, we miss out on his power. And if you are not sure why you feel so spent, If your soul feels so weary, maybe it's because you have hope, but your hope is not in the Lord. Isaiah 40 tells us that those who have hoped in the Lord will renew their strength, and they will what? They will soar on wings like eagles. And I love this verse, verse 31. I I actually love animal shows. I don't know if anyone else does, but I've seen, I think, almost every animal show on Netflix and Amazon Prime. And eagles have to be like my favorite bird of all the animals. Do you ever notice that birds fly, but eagles soar, right? No one looks at like a robin and goes, look at that robin, soar, right? But they they have a special word for an eagle's flight because it's so unique. And what becomes immediately apparent when you observe an eagle's flight is not just the amazing heights that eagles reach, but it's how effortlessly that they can rise in the air without even flapping their wings. They seem to just defy all the laws of gravity, And how does this happen? The answer is wind thermals. Wind thermals. You know, in this book, Eagles, Masters of the Sky, author Rebecca Grambo, she explains this wind thermal dynamic. And she says, eagles use wind thermals, and that is rising currents of warm air and updrafts generated generated by rough terrain, such as valley edges or mountain slopes, to help them soar with minimal, minimal wing flapping, thereby saving precious energy. Robert Ohlendorf, in um, another book, he says this. He's an avid eagle watcher. And he says, I watched the perched eagle take flight from the cliff atop and begin searching for lifting air currents. 
Air near the, gr- near the ground warmed and rose in large bubbles called thermals, made visible by the female eagle climbing effortlessly, 500, 700, and still many feet higher. And, you know, these observations reveal a number of interesting things. Unlike other beagle, eagles, uh, birds, eagles do not rely on the force generated from their wings to reach great heights. They rely on a different source, the wind. And not just any wind, but wind thermals, rising currents of warm air. And although these wind thermals are invisible, the eagle searches for them. The eagle sees their effects, and over time, the eagle gains an intimate knowledge of these wind thermals. And this understanding allows the eagle to fly higher than any other bird with far less physical effort. And I I think it should be noted that the landscape which generates the best updraft and the most effortless flights are not flat grassy areas or open waters, but where? Rough terrains, such as valley edges or mountain slopes. And, you know, our natural instinct is to avoid at all costs those places, right? Rough terrain, valley edges, mountain slopes. However, it's in these very places that the wind thermal, thermal wind currents are greatest. And where if we understand and wait and trust the winds that we rise the highest. And the heavier and the more mature the eagle is, the more dependent it is on the lift that is provided by these thermals. And so is it any surprise that the most mature and strongest eagles rely on those winds the most? And I think it gives new meaning to when you read Isaiah 64, verse 4. No eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. It is God who does the work when we trust in him. It is God who lifts us up even though we cannot see him. It is God who gives us the strength even though we grow weary. And when we hope in the Lord and mount up and soar on wings like eagles, it is God who does that work and lifts us up. Hoping in the Lord is waiting with patient expectation for God to act in his way and in his time. Because I trust in his power and his promise and have faith in his wisdom and his will. I want to close with um, one last verse. And um, this comes from 1 Corinthians 13. It's a very familiar chapter, I think, the chapter on love. Many of you may be very familiar with. And the Apostle Paul closes with this last verse. He says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. And, you know, we see these three words together often in the New Testament, and they they kind of appear to share equal standing, right? But then you get to 1 Corinthians 13, and you realize, no, they don't. Paul tells us that love is greater than faith. Love is greater than hope. And have you ever wondered why? Faith is important. We need faith for salvation, right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, the Bible tells us. Hope is important. Hope is our source of joy in troubles. Hope gives us the strength to persevere, which is why I think this message is important. But why is love greater than faith and hope? Well, faith will one day become unnecessary. Why? Because we will see with our eyes that which we have believed in our hearts. Hope will soon become moot because every promise of God will be fulfilled to the last letter and will be an indisputable reality. Love, 
however, is unique. Love endures forever. And the one who is infinite and who is love will lavish his love upon his beloved with an infinite love for all of eternity. So for those who believe in Jesus, one day all of your greatest hopes will become a reality when you come face to face with Christ. And until that beautiful day, we are told, hope in the Lord. Hope in his love. Hope in the one who is love. Let's bow our heads. I want to invite the worship team to come up. They're going to lead us in a closing worship as I think they usually do. But in this time, I want to invite us into just a, a brief moment of quiet prayer and reflection. You know, I, I know that you as a church at RCC here, the church has been going through so much. So much hurt, so much heartache. And um, we've been praying for you. And um, heart goes out. I, I understand why in this place it's so hard to find hope. And I know that there are some of you in this room, even beyond church, who have reached the end of your rope. And you've lost all strength. And you don't feel that you can go on. There are some of you who have been praying the same prayer for years and years. And maybe it's for a family member, a friend. Maybe it's for your child to change, to get better. And you've been praying so long with no parent change and you're losing hope. And there are some in this room who are stuck in a situation, in a place in life that is causing you so much pain, so much distress, and you feel trapped and you feel that there's no way out. There's no hope for change. There's no hope for a better life. This word is for you. Isaiah is for you. This promise is for you. And I believe in this place and in this moment that God, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking to you. And he is saying to you, turn turn to me. Fix your eyes on me. Hope in me. Trust me. Wait. Trust in my power. Trust in my wisdom. And so if we would, let's take a moment, in just a brief minute, in the quietness of our own hearts, to just let go whatever else we may be placing our hope in, whatever false idols that we can see and touch that may give us a false sense of security or hope. And let's ask God to grant us the faith to trust in him, to find hope in him, to wait upon him. And then in a moment, our our worship team will lead us in song, closing.